0: Do you remember when European tourists were held for ransom in the Sahara Desert? It was back in 2003. It turned out to be a fundraising operation for jihadists.
1: This organization managed to get 6 million euros in ransom, money that they used to found uh, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb.
0: Loretta Napoleoni returns to travel with Rick Steves today to explain how human trafficking has been funding terrorism. Long ago, the city-state of Naples was a kingdom in the Mediterranean world.
2: They were very powerful, they had a lot of money, and then all of a sudden, when Italy's united, they lose their money, they lose their power, and they are still looking for that grandeur.
0: American expats who live in Italy coach us on how to enjoy the personality of one of Europe's craziest high-energy cities.
3: It is the birthplace of pizza.
0: Or maybe you'd prefer Oslo. Tigerstaben, the city of the tiger. It's all ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Human trafficking has probably surpassed the international illegal drugs trade in the amount of money that's being laundered to support terrorist organizations like ISIS. That's one of the things Loretta Napoleone has uncovered as a consultant to world leaders on economic and security issues. She joins us in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves to explain how money from refugees and ransom from kidnappings is fueling jihadist organizations. We'll also look today at two European cities that offer alternatives for visitors in search of something different from the scene back home. A little later in the hour, we'll hear how Oslo turned an ugly industrial waterfront into a pedestrian-friendly gathering place. But if you don't mind a little grit and grime, the intense human energy you'll encounter on the streets of Naples is truly one of a kind. You'll either love it or hate it. To help prepare you for the scene in Naples, we're joined now by two American guides, originally from Cleveland and Chicago, who've made themselves at home in Italy for years now. They'll take your calls at 877-333-7425. Nina Bernardo and Ann Long, welcome. Thanks, Hi, Rick. Rick. Thanks. So you're both uh, Americans who have adopted Italy. Nina, what's your story?
3: I came to Italy in 1996 to spend one year there, and 20 years later, I'm still there. You're I love it. you still there. You yeah. love
0: it. Ann Long, what's your story?
2: I came over for six months to learn the language while I was deciding about a change in major at university and ended up staying 37 years, marrying. And now you live in Sor- Sorrento. Sorrento,
0: which is sort of the resort town an hour south of Naples. Right, to a good base. And Nina, you live in, live in Rome? I live in
3: Rome, but I lived in Naples for four years.
0: So when you think about Italy, I, I love this term, bella chaos. Uh, what does that mean to you, Nina?
3: I think that to the outside, it seems really chaotic, but they have their own set of internal rules. So you just have to sort of spend enough time there to figure out how they're doing things. Because it does work. It's worked for it does, centuries. It works for them, yeah. and,
0: and people could sort it out if they wanted to, I suppose.
3: I suppose, but that would take away all the charm.
0: Ah, so when I say bella chaos, that means in Italian, I, I believe. Beautiful, Beautiful chaos. Beautiful chaos. That's right. And uh, I always think it's interesting that when I go to a hotel, I ask to be in a quiet room in the back. Italians often prefer to be on the noisy room in the front. They just like to be part of the scene.
2: Oh, they want to be in the main square of, of a town. They don't want to live in a little outside of the town where you have a garden and things. They want to be right where all the noise and traffic right where and smells are.
0: Now, when we think of Bella Chaos, I think Naples is sort of the queen of Bella Chaos. What, what is it about Naples that makes it so intense, Nina?
3: I think part of it is that um, you have all these people living in a very tiny geographic area, so everything that happens in a bigger city happens in a much smaller space, so it feels more intense. It's got this tangible energy. And Neapolitans are by nature theatrical and dramatic.
0: It's just. And everybody
3: wants to be the star of the show. So, how are you going to be the star of the show if you're kind of quiet and reserved
0: and standing in the background? And when you're thinking about Naples, I think about corruption, I think about organized crime, I think about poverty, crowding, and strikes. It's all
2: True, (laughs) (laughs) true, true, and true. But Naples was such uh, a big kingdom, the south of Italy, kingdom of Sicilies, the two Sicilies. So they were very powerful. They had a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, when the Italy's united, they lose their money, they lose their power, and they are still looking for that grandeur. Mm -hmm. And in order to get that grandeur back, then you get the bad people coming in that are selling jobs and giving them employment that the national government won't do.
0: First time I got off a train in Naples, I was a, I was a, just a school kid and I was met by a man in a, in a doctor's white robe and he said, we need blood for a dying baby. And it was just surrounded by garbage and chaos and, and dogs. And, and I looked into this man's eyes and I thought, I'm getting back on the train. I literally got back on the train and I went to Greece. <laughs> 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 I, 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 <laughs> With all your blood. With all, <laughs> With all my blood and all my belongings. <laughs> And to this day, I I enjoy going back to that spot and uh, remembering how frightened I was with my first visit. But also, now... I'm mature enough traveler to get beyond the, the riffraff at the train station. What's your advice, Anne, for somebody arriving at the station in Naples for their first time?
2: We as Americans, we're too polite. We, we tend to stop when somebody says, may I talk to you, may I ask you something. Just keep moving until you can get out of there, and then you can get mixed in with the real Neapolitans. They're nice people. Naples has really cleaned up its station as well.
3: It's not as dodgy as it used to be. <laughs> and police protection. Yeah. I mean, it is the place where you first arrive. You
0: have to be careful, but it's not like it was 20 Years ago, either. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nina Bernardo and Anne Long about Naples. Debbie's calling from Omaha. Hi, Debbie.
3: Hello. I went on a tour which was fabulous. We had a wonderful time. We went with a driver and it was so busy and scooters scooting in and out, we were afraid to get out of our van.
0: <laughs> it's pretty crazy traffic. I remember, uh, Debbie, with my groups, uh, helping them get across the street because you have to be bold, you have to stick together, and you have to just forge your way across that traffic.
3: No hesitation mm-hmm. allowed. And what, yeah. were
0: your, what were your favorite memories of Naples?
3: We found a little pizza place right along the water where you could see Mount Vesuvius. We had wonderful pizza and house wine.
0: You know, Naples brags that it's the birthplace of pizza. It's the home of the best pizza. It is the birthplace mm-hmm. of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely <laughs> the birthplace of pizza. And, uh, there's a, a street called Via Tribunale, which has some amazing little pizzerias on it.
3: Oh, every other shop is a pizzeria there and yeah.
0: they're, they all have lines. And they, if you're sort of the, the basic fundamental pizzeria, you're going to serve Marinara and margarita. Marinara and margarita. What are those two? What do they? So
3: marinara is just with uh, the tomato sauce and the basil, and then the margarita has the mozzarella cheese on it as well, named after the queen, the second king of Italy's wife, Queen Margarita. That's how it gets its name.
0: And mozzarella is kind of uh, a local treat in that area, right? Isn't it? Exactly,
3: yeah. especially the buffalo milk mozzarella.
0: Debbie, what was your favorite pizza? Do you remember?
3: We had the margarita. It was delicious.
0: The margarita. Yeah. Uh If you order a margarita, you're not going to get a drink. You're going to get a pizza. Be careful about that when you're (laughs) in Italy. All right. Thanks for your call, Debbie.
2: All right. Thank you. Happy travels.
0: Amanda's calling from Chicago. Hi, Amanda.
2: Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I had a question about the secret room in the uh, Naples Museum. I was there, and it was closed and under construction, and I know how long Italian construction can take. So I was just wondering if you knew if it was back open.
0: The secret room, first of all, the secret room at the Naples Museum. The Naples Museum is an amazing museum that has all of the greatest art from Pompeii and, and, Herculaneum. and Herculaneum. So when you go to Pompeii, it feels like it's been stripped bare. Thank goodness it has, because that would have been pillaged and, and so on. And now it's safely out of the weather, out of the elements in downtown Naples. So I would say no, no visit to Pompeii or Herculaneum, the, the uh, towns that were destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius 79 years after Christ. No visit to those archaeological sites is complete without going to the great Naples Museum in downtown Naples. You'll see wonderful art, exquisite mosaics, paintings, and also a room full of... Well, Nina, can you explain what's in the secret room? Well, it
3: was a secret room because it was considered off-limits and you had to get special permission at one time to go in because it was considered scandalous. But basically, it's erotica or pornography used in different ways in ancient Roman society. So, as a way of telling jokes or entertaining your guests or what you would find in a brothel. Think about all the travelers that went through Pompeii and didn't speak the same language but were going to the brothels and needed. So you need like a a menu of what to sell. You need a menu,
2: right. And luck if you had a lot of children you were lucky because they could take over your business your fields or whatever and so the penis was always considered anything that had that's to right because
0: all you see is lots of uh, phallic symbols, phallic symbols and giant right. penises and that would be for fertility for fertility and, and uh, for old age security so you could put it on a big uh, mosaic of a penis on your wall and you what you weren't trying to be sexy
2: well they're still wearing them around their neck in the form of a, a little a uh, charm. So
0: it's a good luck charm it or, is a or charm. fertility. And it is—is is it open now? Uh, to answer. Oh yes, it uh, is absolutely open. open.
2: Yeah. So
0: Amanda, the secret room is wide open.
2: I will start in uh, to plan my next trip. Thanks for your call. Thank you.
0: Italy-based tour guides Anne Long and Nina Bernardo are showing us around Naples right now on Travel with Rick Steves. So when we think about Naples, I think about living in the street. Nina, talk about Spacanapoli, the Spanish quarter, and Basso living.
3: So their apartments are so incredibly small, especially if you live in a basso. Basso means low. So they're the ground floor apartments where you only have a door that opens out into the street, maybe a window, and then your apartment goes straight back. So very little light. So you want to spend as little time as possible in there. So that's why you're living your life outside on the streets. And there is no such thing as privacy in Naples. They're kind of nosy and they want to know what's going on in everybody else's life. When I was living in uh, Naples, there was a wonderful little trattoria across from my apartment, and the owners lived next door to me. And my mother came to visit, and I took her there, and we had a wonderful meal. And my mother said, was complimenting the woman on the meal and said, oh, this is my daughter. She lives here. And the woman interrupted her and said, oh, I know exactly who your daughter is, and she does this, that, and the other. And I had no idea, and we were just neighbors, and and she knew everything. everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows what's going on.
0: Anne Long, take me on just a quick look into the Spanish Quarter or the Spaconopoli. This is the most characteristic rough-and-tumble district in Naples. What what is the charm of it?
2: Yeah, the architecture is from 400, 500, 600 years ago. It is stepping back in time because the cobblestones... The buildings, even the grime and the dirt on the buildings look like it's been there for 300 years. And yet it's so lively. And if you could get inside, I've been inside a couple of the apartments that are in Spacanopoli. They're absolutely gorgeous Mm. with very high ceilings and beautiful chandeliers and beautiful balconies. They're hidden behind a curtain.
0: Spacanopoli, that means split Naples, Naples. doesn't it? It's one straight street that cuts through the ancient heart of the town. That goes back to... Ancient Greek times. Yeah, uh, It's 2,500 uh, so years. Uh, 500 years before Christ. And today people are still living and working in the same place.
3: And I think if any traveler who goes there and spends any time in Pompeii and wants to try to imagine what life was like in ancient Rome, Napoli is the place to imagine it because the grid pattern of the streets, Spacanopolis on top of what Anne was saying, the decubanus mayor. It's just underneath 30 Mm -hmm.
0: feet, but it's the same grid pattern. And the big wide sills in the windows, they would sell their their goods? Right, exactly. And they're still putting their
3: wares out on the streets, just like the ancient people in Pompeii did.
0: So that is the delightful pinnacle of sightseeing in Naples, is to wander through the neighborhoods and imagine that you're just in centuries past. You've got baskets being dropped down by old ladies from the fifth floor that don't get out much anymore to pick up their produce and you've got people playing cards on the folding table. Yeah, and, and they're
2: telling the man's walking around with the bird that pulls out the lucky number that you should play in the lottery.
0: Lovers sitting together on a motorino on a, on a little motorbike that exactly. don't have a private place to go. I And mean, if you
3: go into the Spanish Quarter, an older gentleman might have a little side hustle by having set up a little table outside his basso and maybe he's selling you some sausage or something that he's made in his, in his own kitchen.
2: I love it. Playing
0: music. So if you haven't been to Naples since, uh, like since when that doctor told me they need blood for a dying baby, (laughs) (laughs) it's time to go back to Naples and, and get an update. Thanks so much, Nina and Anne.
2: You're very welcome, Rick. You're welcome.
0: Norway's capital city, Oslo, has been spiffing up lately with a new opera house and a beautiful riverfront promenade. We'll look into it as a well-ordered base for your travels through Scandinavia in just a bit. But first, for some insight into the grimmer realities of the world scene, Loretta Napoleoni shares what she's learned about how jihadist groups are funding their operations on the backs of refugees and the ransoms they collect from kidnapping. We're at 877-333-7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. Journalist Loretta Napoleoni is an expert on international terrorist financing and money laundering. She advises government leaders and international organizations on how to combat terrorism. She's written Merchants of Men to illustrate how human trafficking has become a major revenue source for organizations like ISIS and al-Qaeda. Ms. Napoleoni joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to explain how ISIS is funding their political ambition to establish a 21st-century version of the caliphate. Loretta Napoleone, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: In your book, Merchants of Men, you describe the Islamic State as being run like a large corporation. How is ISIS run like a corporation? And how big is it?
1: Well, it was about six months ago, nine months ago, around $2 billion that was the turnover, more or less.
0: So their annual budget would be $2 billion.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. more or less. I mean, this, of course, we're estimating. The the key issue is not how much money do you have, but is how do you use those money? How do you spend it? How do you manage your resources? So that's why I say the Islamic State is run like corporations. So you have an elite which guarantees law and order inside the caliphate, And then you have an elite which also delegates the protection of the borders to the jihadists. So, that's like the armies. Again, this is very similar to the way that the modern state is structured. And then underneath this, you have um, the tribal leaders. So, the tribal leaders are the ones who are running the resources of the caliphate, resources which were conquered by the army of the caliphate in a war of conquest for the construction of the caliphate so we're talking about oil we're talking about water and we're talking about agricultural land rich agricultural land these are the three most important resources so the tribal leader is a bit like the board of directors of a corporation They decide the strategy and they report directly to the elite, meaning the way the Islamic State makes money out of this structure is through taxation. So people pay taxes, people pay royalties. So you have an oil field, uh, you pay royalties to uh, the government.
0: So, this sounds all very similar to a corporation or another country, but one element that is unique is human trafficking. And in your book, Merchants of Men, you're talking about how kidnapping and refugee trafficking really is a multi billion dollar business to help fund a group like ISIS. How has that come to be?
1: Well, the model is the model of criminal jihadists. So, you have groups like Al Qaeda in the Maghreb. Who made money kidnapping foreigners and then invested this money in an infrastructure for human trafficking in the case of the Islamic state it's different. They do not get involved in kidnapping or human trafficking. They actually again act as a state, meaning if you are a human traffickers and you want to cross from Syria or from Iraq to Turkey, you can cross the territory of the caliphate and you will pay a tax for every single uh, migrant that you're carrying. And this tax will go to the Islamic State. So the Islamic State lets you use its land. In the case of the hostages, they do not kidnap the hostages. They buy them on the secondary market, uh, and they buy them uh, for different reasons, either because they want to use the hostages for political reasons, so it's a sort of diplomacy, or they buy them um, in order to use them for propaganda purposes. So they could
0: buy a hostage to kill them for the publicity value, or they could buy the hostage to resell them?
1: Yes, absolutely. We have never seen anything like that before.
0: So, who are these people that get kidnapped? Because you imply in the book that it could bring risk to those who travel to far corners, backpackers, Peace Corps workers, naive Western holiday goers just getting off the beaten path. Is there some danger there now for regular run-of-the-mill travelers that wasn't there 10 years ago?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. The kidnapping industry really started in 2003 when a group of jihadists from Algeria who were working as smugglers of cocaine from West Africa all the way to North Africa, they decided to branch off into the kidnapping industry. So they kidnapped 32 tourists, people that were in Mali, in Mauritania, in southern Algeria as a tourist. So 32 people who were there on holiday ended up as hostages. And this organization managed to get six million euros in ransom, money that they use to found Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb.
0: If Loretta, if I'm thinking I'm just thinking now from a personal safety point of view, of course if you venture into some very, very dangerous places where no normal tourist would go, you're taking a a risk. But are there a handful of places that are actually considered reasonable places for a tourist to go just to look around and enjoy the culture or the nature that you would not go because of the risk of kidnapping? What would those places be?
1: Well, I would say that I would not go to Tunisia, for example. I would not go to Egypt either.
0: Talk more about Egypt because I want to go to Egypt to make a TV show (laughs) and I'm all ready to go to Egypt to make a TV show, but I'm so nervous about going there because I do think I would be a nice little catch.
1: I would not go to Egypt to do anything. I would not go to Egypt to see the pyramids and I would not go to Egypt to do a TV show either. The risk is extremely high. The problem is also the fact that our government, so if you have an American passport, is no leverage whatsoever with the Egyptian government.
0: This kidnapping and ransoming and uh, refugee trafficking, you mention it's as big of an industry as the illegal drug trade by some measures. Is it really that big, and, and how much of it is refugee trafficking and how much of it is kidnapping?
1: Well, what I say is that the revenues generated by the kidnapping And uh, trafficking is actually higher than the revenues they get from the drug trade. Because, of course, the drug trade is controlled by the cartel and also is controlled by the organized crime in Europe that distributes drugs. So if you are a jihadist, a criminal jihadist, you only participate to a very small section of the drug trade. So you are a smuggler. So you carry the cocaine from West Africa all the way to Libya. So the revenues are not as big as if you control a business 100% mm-hmm. and you carry human beings from West Africa. You don't share the profit with anybody else.
0: Loretta Napoleoni was born in Rome and educated at Johns Hopkins and the London School of Economics. As a journalist, she was once given access to interview members of Italy's violent Red Brigade revolutionary movement. She advises international leaders, and her access to negotiators, security services, and even former hostages helps her analyze how jihadists have turned kidnapping and refugee trafficking into a multibillion-dollar enterprise. She writes about it in her book, Merchants of Men. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, And Tony's calling from Waterloo in Indiana. Tony, thanks for your call.
2: Well, thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Yeah, do you have a comment or a question for Loretta?
2: Well, Loretta, my question is this. My friend and I were in Paris in October, right before the event that transpired there. We felt safe. We were in a tour program that was sort of Paris by immersion. We would like to go back. We would like to rent an apartment. But with the hundreds of thousands of refugees that are pouring into western europe at this time i'm just i'm not that comfortable with my plans and i wondered if either of you think that there is an undue risk or it's something that maybe i should rethink or if it really is still a safe destination
1: i don't think the refugees are impacting uh, tourism at all. I mean, you don't see them. So uh, I think Paris is safe. The difference between going to Paris or to France and to Egypt is the fact that in Paris or in France, you, you may be so unlucky to be close to a terrorist attack but the chances uh, i mean it's easier that you win the lottery <laughs> and something like this happens
0: and tony if i could just pitch in on this whole refugee concern because a lot of people are dreaming about going to europe and they see these images of refugees flooding in and i don't think the refugee situation in europe has any impact on travelers if you want to be nervous and concerned about terrorists I would not give the terrorist threat any concern if I was going to Europe. I'd take my loved ones to Europe and I would firmly believe that we are safer in Europe than we are in the United States from a personal safety point of view. But refugees, it is just completely wrong for a traveler to be worried about refugees if they're thinking about going to Europe.
1: I agree
0: 100%. There's some good thoughts to think about, Tony. Thanks for your call.
1: Well, thank
2: you. I appreciate it very much.
0: You bet. Ellen's calling from Northampton in Massachusetts. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for your call. Thank
1: you. Thank you. I wonder if Loretta would address Iran. I was searching there and somebody from Iran came online and said I had to have an escort if I was there. I think being a single woman, I maybe would. And I'm not sure if that's true. Yeah. I think if you want to go on holiday there to visit the sites, because I mean, Iran is an amazing country. Right. Yes, you will have to have a a male escort with you. You cannot go by yourself. I mean, you cannot get on a train or a bus. And also, I think it would be much wiser to go with a group. Well, that's what he said, too. (laughs) uh, I'll put that to rest, but I want to ask another question where you had told Rick that there was more money in human trafficking
2: than in refugees, and I'm wondering if secrecy is a part of it, if people are maybe threatened to keep quiet about this ransom.
1: Oh, absolutely. Everybody, this is the silent crime. <laughs> people keep quiet because the government tells them to be quiet. Exactly. Um, because So the entire business is uh, a mystery, and it's kept as a mystery because at the end of the day, the governments that pay ransom are actually using uh, taxpayers' money. So people want to know, <laughs> where do you get this money? <laughs> I mean, they, they bring people home, I mean, the Italians are the ones that pay the highest ransom. So a year ago, they paid 13 million euros for two Italians, uh, two very young uh, Italians that had gone into Syria to bring some uh, uh, mimetic kits for battle. They wanted to help uh, the the fighters. So they kidnapped right away. The Italian government keeps saying, no, we didn't pay anything. But, you know, we know they, they paid. I mean, they are... Documentation also. Somebody even filmed the money, so mm. we know. So the taxpayer in Italy may ask the government, uh, why did you spend those 30 million mm. euros? Uh, Don't encourage uh, could, them. <laughs> uh, yeah, you encourage them. And I spoke with many journalists, many Italian journalists uh, who told me, it's okay, I have an Italian passport, so I know my government will get me out.
2: Wow,
0: that is, <laughs> you know, and it's hard to imagine the incentive that these groups have for grabbing somebody and putting them up for um, hostage ransom. Oh,
1: absolutely.
0: You wrote in your book that 10 years or so ago, a hostage was worth $2 million in Iraq, and today it's closer to $10 million. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Ellen, thanks for your call. Thank you. Loretta Napoleone is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She's written several books about international terrorism and how it's financed. Her latest title is called Merchants of Men. She's also written Terror Incorporated and The Islamist Phoenix, Islamic State and the Redrawing of the Middle East. You'll find a link to her TED Talk on terrorism with the notes for this week's show. Look in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Loretta, you you talked in your book about a man from Algeria named Rashid, who you met in Scandinavia, and he was talking about the impact of 9-11 on this dark industry. Can you share that story?
1: Yeah, his real name was not Rashid. I don't know what his real name He pretended to be Iraqi when he got to Europe because at that time, I think it was 2005, 2006, it was very easy to get the status of refugees if if you were coming from Iraq. As today, it's very easy to get if you're coming from Syria. So his father was arrested by the military regime that took over Algeria after the election in the 1990s, uh, that put in power an Islamist party. His father was arrested, his brother also. So the mother sent him away that same day. He was a teenager with a group of jihadists, or future jihadists. They were mujahideen at that time uh, from the JIA. And um, he went south of Algeria, and he became a smuggler because this is how these people actually survived, uh, smuggling cigarettes from Algeria to West Africa. Then all of a sudden, the business of human trafficking took off, and he had to become a human trafficker. And he was completely disgusted by this uh, situation. So he pretended to be a refugee. Uh, He got on a boat pretended to be a refugee and got to Italy. Uh, And then eventually he got to Sweden. And he told me this story when I was touring Sweden with a group of artists uh, to protest against the war in Iraq. And he told me the story because he wanted this story to be known. He wanted people to know how tragic the situation was in uh, the Sahel and southern Algeria.
0: And and his story was basically he, he was a two-bit cigarette smuggler and things changed after 9-11 and suddenly he found himself smuggling guns and then eventually smuggling people. And uh, he got caught up in that and it was just part of the everyday metabolism of the economy.
1: Yeah, that's what people don't understand is that a lot of these young kids do not choose <laughs> to to be what they are. They're forced to because poverty, because destabilization. This um, Rashid, whatever was his real name, did not choose anything.
0: And ironically, he became a refugee himself.
1: Yeah, he he lied. He he lied. He Actually, through that lie, he he could abandon a life that he had not chosen. So can we blame him? So how many people are out there, like him, I think many.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Loretta Napoleone. Her book is Merchants of Men, How Jihadists and ISIS Turned Kidnapping and Refugee Trafficking into a Multi-Billion Dollar Business. Loretta, you put a lot of work and research into this book. Let's just close with what you would like the reader to come away with. Why did you write this book, and and what's the most important single takeaway?
1: There are two objectives. The first objective is to show young people in the West how dangerous the world is. Uh, There are so many people that want to go and travel the world, do good things. Uh, They want to become journalists. They want to become photographers. They want to become aid workers. And they go straight into the lion's den. (laughs) They are easy prey of kidnappers. I also want readers to realize that the other side of the coin is young people born in these destabilized countries, in this uh, failed state, a broken nation, who are equally prey of these uh, individuals, so the merchants of men. These are the people that are trafficked, They are trafficked through various countries in order to reach Europe. And in the process, uh, they get kidnapped time and time again, and the families have to pay more and more money. We're not talking about millions here, but we're talking about massive amount of money for you know, people they have nothing.
0: So that's the reality of, of the early 21st century yeah, uh, refugee. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they're all young people. So who are the number one victims of this trade? Is the new generations, the youth?
0: Loretta Napoleone, thank you so much, and uh, best wishes. Thank you. Next, we lighten it up a bit with a look at what's new for visitors to Norway's capital, Oslo. We're at eight seven seven three 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 rick on Travel with Rick Steves. What does it look like when a Viking settles down to make a home in the city? Norway's capital, Oslo, is an inviting example. Its waterfront echoes the beauty of the fjords and it ranks among the top among European cities for quality of life. It's also one of the most expensive cities in the world. Oslo recently opened Europe's most striking new opera house in a former industrial zone to provide a new waterfront urban center, and yet access to nature is just a short ride away in any direction. For a look at what's new in Oslo, we'll check in now with tour guide Paul Johansen. Paul, thanks for joining us thanks for being here so I uh, described Oslo the best I could right there. Does, does that make sense to you I think That was a very
4: good uh description actually yeah, yeah i'm I'm impressed I'm just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fishing for a compliment yeah or, I, uh, I I always say that um, Oslo is extremely compact and it has a
0: lot to offer A lot of people they go to Copenhagen on their trip and okay that's uh, I did a Scandinavian capital, mm-hmm. but I always say the Scandinavian capitals are distinct and each has something very special to offer, yeah And Oslo. In some ways, it's the smallest of the Scandinavian capitals, but boy, there are a lot of fun things to see there. And I like the thought that Oslo is like the big thunderous city for the Norwegian people, and Mm -hmm. it has been for for generations. Mm -hmm. Its nickname is uh, the the Tiger or something like that, isn't
4: it? Yeah, Tigerstaden, City of the Tiger. And actually, in in front of the um, central station, there is a big
0: statue of a tiger, like a big bronze statue. Anybody who comes into Oslo, they step out of the train station, they're going to see see the tiger. tiger. It's a meeting
4: point also. Meet me by the tiger. So
0: be careful of the allure of the big city in Norway. And the funny thing about that is it's quite a charming city as far as big cities go.
4: It is very charming. And as I said, it has a lot to offer in terms of um, museums and nature. You have the forest just by, you have the fjord.
0: And it's surrounded by nature. It's surrounded by nature. In a yeah. very um, intense way. I mean, yeah. You've got the Oslo Fjord, you've mm-hmm. got Ski Jump, you've got all this uh, lush forest and lakes, mm-hmm. and, and it's a city that is vibrant. It's a work in progress. And so many cities in Europe, their industrial zone on the on the harbor was... Not very people-friendly and slowly these are being transformed into people-friendly zones and and Oslo is taking the lead in this. Yeah, and and I mean you
4: don't have to go very far back in time. Go back to the 70s, 80s. They built the oil platform down at the harbor front. Unthinkable. Yeah, unthinkable. You see photos of it, of these big platforms being Ah. towed out of the fjord yeah. it's just amazing and now yeah. it's a people-friendly promenade yeah now you have uh, you know the museum of modern art you have a new uh, apartments uh, the restaurants the most striking cafes. opera house in all of Europe I'd say you have a say. beautiful uh, opera house and they're building a new monk museum now down by the opera house Edvard Monk the great Norwegian expressionist yeah.
0: painter the famous for the scream the scream yeah So, so that'll um, be a museum dedicated to I think the most famous Norwegian painter I yeah. love oh that. yeah Yeah. is Certainly. that going to take the, the paintings from from the existing Monk Museum outside of town.
4: Yes, they're going to move them from Tøyen, where right. they are now at the Monk Museum,
0: uh-huh. down to that Monk Museum. Now, when I was first going to Oslo, a lot of traffic, but I think when they started renovating the harbor front, mm-hmm. they drilled tunnels, and now the traffic yep. goes under the city.
4: They built the Opera Tunnel. Right, They call it. And that goes um, pretty much under the opera. So it took all the traffic away from the, the harbor front.
0: So you stand in the harbor front now and it's you can hear the birds tweeting and
4: it's peaceful. Yeah. It's becoming quite peaceful. And we have this great new um, political party in the city council of Oslo now, the environmental party, the Green Party. You have an environmental party in power? It's a coalition of three parties and they are one of, of those parties. Things are starting to happen. They are removing, uh, you know, parkings, uh, we're going to have this is uh, pretty
0: serious. Yeah, we're
4: going to have electrical buses now uh, right. uh, in a very short time. So, so Norwegians
0: um, are are serious about environmental oh yeah, politics. Definitely. This is travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Paul Johansen, and we're talking about Oslo. Paul, when we think about Oslo, it's a city that you mentioned has a lot of sightseeing attractions, and and one great thing is from Oslo you can jump out into the great natural wonders of Norway, and this mm-hmm. is something Norwegians really appreciate. You have a boat. You've actually mm-hmm. lived on your boat, I understand, yep, for a while. I have. You've got the Oslo Fjord right mm-hmm. there. You can hop on a ferry and get to a, like a, what we would call an island state park, and, yep. and it's not like you're in a city at all, but you're just yeah. half an hour away on the boat. Yeah. Uh... Uh, one of my favorite experiences is riding the subway mm-hmm. to the very last stop, and yeah. that's up in the hills, high above Oslo, mm-hmm. with a rented bicycle. And then going through the forest and arcing all the way. And it's nice because I'm kind of lazy and out of shape and it's downhill. <laughs> through the forest, around the lakes, and eventually back into the city. Have you yeah. ever done that?
4: I've done that, but uh, I, I do it on skis. Ah, that would cross-country be Cross-country nice. skiing, yeah. Can you do that? You can ride the T-Bahn. Yeah, you, you ride the t and the number one line all the way up to the end. You That's b- past Holmenkoln, this ski Past all the way to the end. You basically just step out of the T-Bahn, put on your skis, And go, like, for hours into the forest. forest. And there's also um, bobsleigh. Bobsleigh? Yeah. You take the Teban to the end, Uh and you can rent bobsleighs and you can you can ride down a hill like a pretty long a hill, hill yeah. and you take
0: the Teban up again okay so they use the public transit to the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the subway as, <laughs> yeah. a, as a ski lift they essentially do. they do and the stop before the very last one is of course Homancolan ski jump which yeah. is the there's a ski museum there
4: ski museum and uh, and they put up a zip line up there now so uh, you can attach yourself to a zip line and then go down the <laughs> down I was there at the
0: top of the <laughs> ski jump and this is this classic <laughs> ski jump and yeah. you just look down that thing and you just feel the uh, the, the thrill of victory and the agony yeah, of yeah, defeat. yeah, yeah. and now in the summer, when there's nobody skiing, you get on that zipline and Mm -hmm. bam, Bam. all the way down. Oslo-based tour guide Paul Johansson's our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He's updating us on his city's attractions and how it makes an ideal base for touring Scandinavia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Ruth is calling from Walnut, California. Ruth, thanks for your call. Hi. So
3: we're visiting Oslo and going there for a third time. At this time, we're doing something different. We're actually renting
2: a car and driving the western part of Norway. Our first stop is Flam. I was just curious what to see on our way.
1: Okay,
0: so Um, your first stop is Flam, the uh, famous stop on the Norway-in-a-nutshell trip from Oslo to Bergen that's the best one-day look at the mountain and fjord country of Norway and Flam is the little port where the cogwheel train goes down and, and people mm-hmm. will then catch the scenic ferry ride. Are you riding the train to Flam, that's F-L-A-M, or are you driving to Flam?
2: We're actually driving.
0: You're driving to mm. Flam.
4: It's actually uh, quite a nice drive. You can drive over a mountain pass. It's called uh, Hardanger Vida, and um, you can make stops along the way. And, is that and, where
0: there's the concrete lookout point where you stop your car and you walk out onto this perch above the fjord? It's so um, beautiful. It's sort of like the ultimate fjord view. We have a few of those,
4: but, uh, yeah. but you have to go further further above, to the west. Above uh, uh, Auerland. Auerland, fjord. That's a bit further north. A okay. little bit further north. Maybe yeah. an hour from Flum. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, driving over these mountain passes to, to the west side of, of Norway is actually a very nice experience. Uh, several places you can stop along the way and you can have some traditional uh, Norwegian Food, for example, you can try some sour cream porridge, I'm sure you can find that. Røm-a-grøt. Røm-a-grøt with salty meat on the side. I
0: think you will just find the the nature breathtaking. You know the the relaxing way to do this experience, Ruth, is to take the train from Oslo to Flåm, mm-hmm. and from Flåm you can catch the scenic ferry to Balestrand, I believe, yeah. if you wanted to, and then on to Bergen. Right. And Balestrand is the the German Kaiser went there for fifteen yep. years, I think. It was his yep. favorite vacation destination. Beautiful hotel there. Amazing mm-hmm. place. Mm. And then you could pick up a car somewhere on the west coast and drive around. Of course, you can do it from Oslo. A cool thing about driving out of Oslo is you get to stop at Eidsvoll, where Norway celebrated its freedom and its constitution. Yes. And And you can stop by Lillehammer as well. Where you have the open-air folk museum. Yep. Myhaugen. Put that on your list. It is Mm -hmm. the best look at Norwegian traditional culture, I would say, you can find Mm -hmm. in one of these open-air folk museums that the Scandinavians are so good at. And then you'll drive right up Gebransdalen Valley, mm-hmm. and this is pure Gint country.
4: Yeah, that's a uh, very scenic valley. Most scenic valley we have, uh, I would say,
0: yeah. And then you come to the, the come ultimate to, Stav church.
4: Yeah, to Lom, where you can see a Stav church, and then L-O-I-M. you can drive, o- drive over the um, Sogne mountain after that. Oh, yeah. this is, uh, yeah. Isn't this called Jotunheim? The, the, Jotunheim the home, of the, home of
0: the giants. Home of the giants, yeah, that's right. So, so that's a wonderful opportunity, Ruth. That sounds really good.
2: We're very excited, because yeah. we're actually spending five nights in Norway, driving from spot to spot.
0: Yeah. You know, when you go to Flam, there is a very interesting experience. There's a tunnel they've drilled through the mountains to, it's a little town just up the fjord, literally the next town from Flam, and it's got a tiny little stav church. The ferry will go there, and it's really cool mm-hmm. because the ferry only stops when they put out the flag. Mm-hmm. This That's is true. a ferry that brings the mail. Yeah, yeah. And if somebody's on the boat that wants to stop there, if there happens to be some mail, they'll stop, but you've got to put out the flag. Mm-hmm. But Norway's got this commitment to bring roads to everybody, Mm -hmm. and they must have spent millions and millions of dollars drilling this tunnel... To oh yeah, get to this tiny little town. Yeah, which has uh, like well, 100
4: 100 yeah, people in it. You Find bridges and tunnels going pretty much everywhere in Norway. So prepare yourself for going through a lot of tunnels and over a lot of bridges. There's one tunnel
0: out in that just very nearby mm-hmm. and it's one of the longest tunnels in the world. It one was up, 20 it kilometers or something. Like this yeah. and halfway through there's a rest stop. There's actually several rest stops where, Along you, can, the where way. you can stop, yeah. And the lighting <laughs> changes as you drive so you don't get hypnotized yep. by the same routine. Yeah. Leave it to the Norwegians. (laughs) Ruth, have a good time.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for your call. And Laura's calling from Cudahy in Wisconsin. Laura, thanks for calling.
1: Thanks for having me on, Rick. My husband and I are looking forward to
2: 2018, and the place that most intrigues us is going to
1: Norway, including Oslo. Mm -hmm. But it just seems to be really expensive accommodation-wise, and we were wondering, what would you recommend for budget travelers?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, Paul, because Norway is... So expensive.
4: Norway is quite expensive. It is. Uh, but on the other side, the dollar is very strong now. That's true. Yeah. So, um, so now is a good time to travel. Because you're not say. on the euro, right? It's still the Norwegian yeah, it's still crown. it's the crowner. So for a so. cup of coffee, it will only cost you $20 now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're looking for a budget accommodation, you have, um, you have the Thun Hotels. T-H-U-N? T-H-O-N. T-H-O-N. Uh-huh. And that's a yeah. chain. Yeah, it's a chain. And they, they have pretty affordable um, accommodation. You know, economy
0: in Norway is is not a hardship. You need economy unless you're wealthy. And mm-hmm. Norwegians just don't do anything in a schlocky way. So mm-hmm. you're sort of forced into luxury. So you should go as low end in the luxury as you can. Yeah, yeah. Toon, they have very nice standards, yeah. There's, uh, there's chains of hotels. Also remember that a lot of hotels are designed for business travel. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you happen to be there in the summer, mm-hmm. the rooms are on the push list. Yeah. And they're le- less expensive. Yeah. And you yeah. cannot... Okay,
1: because we're teachers, and so summer is when we travel. You're lucky okay. from
0: a business class hotel
1: because yeah.
4: those are going to be as cheap as the simplest pensions. Mm-hmm. Or you can also try an Airbnb.
0: There are loads of Airbnbs in uh, in Oslo. Oh,
2: okay. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought
0: of that. Airbnb is no. a very good idea, plus you get the bonus of possibly getting to know a Norwegian family. Yeah. When you book an Airbnb place, Laura, you can read the surveys and get a sense of the personality of the place. If you want to have social interaction with your hosts, it'll mm-hmm. be apparent by the feedback. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of okay. decide, do I just want the key and come and go economically, mm-hmm. or do I want to be part of a family? Yeah.
1: Okay. No, and, and it's, we love being able to, to get to know the people in, in the local areas. and so that, Okay, that's,
0: I would look into that. That's
2: helpful. Yeah. All right,
0: have yeah. a good time. Oh, thank you! And, We're looking uh, forward to it. And uh, remember, it's just—it's so expensive that you'll find yourself <laughs> picnicking and uh, you know <laughs> stealing lunch from the breakfast table and <laughs> and, and, and hey, getting. Next- <laughs> sound wonderful. And, uh, and, the, and it's just, yeah. you can go to the little grocery stores and a lot of the, gro- even the convenience stores like the 7-Elevens mm-hmm. have good takeout food. Yeah. And uh, it's but, just um, a budget trip. since you're
4: going in summer, there are parks everywhere where you, where you can have a picnics. That's and, a good um, idea. You can even have
0: a beer in the park. And if you're feeling bad about the high cost, just remember, you are helping to give Paul's children, uh, schools, and Paul's yep. mother, uh, <laughs> a, a nice, convenient uh, retirement, and you're letting these Norwegians live so high on the hog because of their amazing tax situation. Certainness, certain So You're All very right. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Have fun, Laura.
2: Thank you. Okay, bye, bye now. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Oslo with our Oslo tour guide friend, Paul Johansson. Paul, when we think about traveling in Oslo, uh, it is expensive, and I found one of the most interesting places to go is to the immigrant quarter and eat uh, Pakistani food or eat yeah. Turkish food. And yeah. It's actually flavorful, That's and it's uh, about half the price as Norwegian food.
4: It is. That's down at uh, the Grønland area. It's called the Grønland, means Greenland, the basically. Greenland, yeah. yeah. And um, you find a lot of... Uh, Cheap uh, restaurants there, um, Indian and, as you said, Pakistani and so on.
0: How do you manage with the cost so high? I mean, like a beer costs literally 20 bucks or something. Uh, How do the Norwegians party without going broke? Well, the salaries are high. First of all, okay. people make
4: good money. Okay, and that's, so that's basically why. That's uh, prices are high. But it's not $20 for a beer, though. Uh, you, that's you, true. I'm yeah. <laughs> <Thank> yeah you. <laughs> and, and you're scaring people now. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would say more like um, $9, maybe. Oh, that's yeah, good. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> thank you for that correction. That also, I,
0: I heard that Norwegians... Uh, They'll have one drink when they go out and then they'll they'll go home and have or, or start at home and then go.
4: Yeah, out usually again. they have a you have like a pre pre party. A pre party. <laughs> yeah, you start at home, have some beers and drinks,
0: and then you go out. And another option is is it true you can drink in the park, you can buy a, a bottle of beer and go sit on the harbor front? Um in that's more Denmark?
4: Well, in, in Denmark, it's very liberal when it okay. comes to that. In Norway, you can drink in in the big parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as you behave, it's not a, it's not a problem. Just okay. just look what the locals do. If they're drinking there, you can drink there. Okay, yeah.
0: that's good advice. Mm-hmm. And Paul, let's just finish up by talking about when you want to be out and about, it's a beautiful summer evening. Where are the good places to stroll just to sort of connect with the community in yeah. Oslo?
4: Well, I would certainly recommend to take a stroll along the river, Along mm-hmm. the uh, Akid River, uh, which, A-K-E-R? yeah, A K R, uh, which is a beautiful river, runs uh, straight through uh, through Oslo. Comes from a lake up in the in the forest. And in a case like um, this, you could ride the bus to the very top of the valley and stroll downhill, yep, and it's yep.
0: like a park in the ravine all the yeah, way down.
4: It's it's beautiful, and you have all these uh, old um, industrial buildings that have now been converted into. Offices and the restaurants and bars and. Um, it's it's also, you'll hit the sort of trendy bohemian. Uh, yeah, you will come down to to Løkke, right. which is a sort of the Greenwich Village of of Oslo. I would ah. say, yeah, very very trendy area. And Oslo is super walkable. You can you can walk everywhere. It's uh, it's very easy to get around. So acker uh, the river valley, and mm-hmm.
0: uh, you've also got the whole development along the the harbor front.
4: Yeah. They have made a new harbor promenade now and um amongst the capitals in the world it's one of the of the longest harbor promenades in the world is that right yeah
0: so um, Jeez, quite exciting, you know. It's a work in progress. I was it just is. at the Akersbuu uh, development, and mm-hmm. a former pretty much a rundown place, and now it's just fancy condominiums, yeah. beautiful restaurants, lots yeah. of clubs and museums bars, and, museums, yeah. galleries. Yeah, and you walk all the way out, in a little place to swim off the dock at the very end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are are swimming there in the and summer. The main drag in Oslo, Karl gatte is nice because it leads right up to the royal palace. Mm-hmm. That's our parade street,
4: I would say, and also good for orienting yourself uh, in the city. So um, that's where you find all the shops and um, all the tourist traps, I would say. That's true. There's (laughs) a lot of tourist traps (laughs) along there. If you want to get away from
0: the tourist traps, is there one neighborhood that that you'd say is is really happening where you can go and and sort of enjoy a little bit of creative cuisine and small uh, one-off restaurants and so Mm -hmm. on? Then you should go to Grunelöcke. Grunelöcke. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, G-R-U-N-E-R-L-O-K-K-A. Grunelöcke. Yeah, that's right. All right. Yeah. Paul, we started our conversation uh, mentioning that Oslo has more attractions per square inch than almost any city its size. Mm-hmm. I mean, just off the top of my head, you can think of the the Holmenkollen ski jump, the wonderful city hall that's uh, got all these murals that celebrate mm-hmm. the Oslo spirit. Uh, the Vigeland Sculpture Park, the the National Gallery, which is free and filled with great art, that gives you a lets you you understand Norway's passion for its heritage and its mm-hmm. countryside. You got the Nazi Resistance Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is so much to see. Mm-hmm. You can take the little boy across the harbor to Bigdoy and yep. celebrate the maritime heritage that mm-hmm. goes all the way back to the Viking ships. Mm-hmm. If you were to go to one place with a, a guest and you're showing them around your hometown of Oslo, mm-hmm. where well, you'd really get an appreciation of the. The uniqueness and the richness of of Oslo's culture and heritage. What well, would that be?
4: I would uh, take them out to Big Day and uh, and see the maritime museums there, mm-hmm. uh, which is such a big part of Norway's um, proud maritime history, and of course see the the
0: Viking ships in the Viking ship uh, museum. And you look at those ships with the shiplap holes, and they just are they just sort of scream expertise with wood and yeah. uh, wonderful talent with navigating in the high open seas. The Vikings were
4: engineers. No doubt about that. And they are uh, a
0: thousand years old. Yeah, thousand years old. Fantastic. So much to see in Oslo. Paul, thanks so much. I should say tusen takk. Tak. And I'll see you next time in Oslo. Yep. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatten, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac
2: kaplan Wolner. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com.
0: We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
1: Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.